Section 7 of The Extermination of the American Bison This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Extermination of the American Bison by William T. Hornaday Part 1, Chapter 5, The Habits of the Buffalo the history of the buffalo's daily life and habits should begin with the running season. This period occupied the months of August and September, and was characterized by a degree of excitement and activity throughout the entire herd, quite foreign to the ease-loving and even slothful nature which was so noticeable a feature of the bison's character at all other times. The mating season occurred when the herd was on its summer range. The spring calves were from two to four months old through continued feasting on the new crop of buffalo grass and bunch grass the most nutritious in the world perhaps every buffalo in the herd had grown round-sided fat and vigorous the faded and weather-beaten suit of winter hair had by that time fallen off and given place to the new coat of dark gray and black and excepting for the shortness of his hair the buffalo was in prime condition during the running season as it was called by the plainsmen the whole nature of the herd was completely changed. Instead of being broken up into countless small groups and dispersed over a vast extent of territory, the herd came together in a dense and confused mass of many thousand individuals, so closely congregated as to actually blacken the face of the landscape. As if by a general and irresistible impulse, every straggler would be drawn to the common centre, and for miles on every side of the great herd the country would be found entirely deserted. At this time the herd itself became a seething mass of activity and excitement. As usual under such conditions, the bulls were half the time chasing the cows, and fighting each other during the other half. These actual combats, which were always of short duration and over in a few seconds after the actual collision took place, were preceded by the usual threatening demonstrations, in which the bull lowers his head until his nose almost touches the ground, roars like a foghorn until the earth seems to fairly tremble with the vibration, glares madly upon his adversary with half-white eyeballs, and with his forefeet paws up the dry earth and throws it upward in a great cloud of dust high above his back. At such times the mingled roaring—it cannot truthfully be described as lowing or bellowing—of a number of huge bulls unite and form a great volume of sound like distant thunder, which has often been heard at a distance of from one to three miles. I have even been assured by old plainsmen that under favorable atmospheric conditions such sounds have been heard five miles. Notwithstanding the extreme frequency of combats between the bulls during this season, their results were nearly always harmless, thanks to the thickness of the hair and hide on the head and shoulders, and the strength of the neck. Under no conditions was there ever any such thing as the pairing off or mating of male and female buffaloes for any length of time. In the entire process of reproduction, the bison's habits were similar to those of domestic cattle. For years the opinion was held by many, in some cases based on misinterpreted observations, that in the herd the identity of each family was partially preserved, and that each old bull maintained an individual harem and a group of progeny of his own. The observations of Colonel Dodge completely disproved this very interesting theory, for at best it was only a picturesque fancy, ascribing to the bison a degree of intelligence which he never possessed. 
At the close of the breeding season, the herd quickly settles down to its normal condition. The mass gradually resolves itself into numerous bands or herdlets of from twenty to a hundred individuals, so characteristic of bison on their feeding grounds, and these gradually scatter in search of the best grass until the herd covers many square miles of country. In his search for grass, the buffalo displayed but little intelligence or power of original thought. Instead of closely following the divides between watercourses, where the soil was best and grass most abundant, he would not hesitate to wander away from good feeding grounds into barren badlands covered with sagebrush, where the grass was very thin and very poor. In such broken country as Montana, Wyoming, and southwestern Dakota, the herds, on reaching the best grazing grounds on the divides, would graze there day after day until increasing thirst compelled them to seek for water. Then, actuated by a common impulse, the search for a waterhole was begun in a business-like way. The leader of a herd, or bunch, which post was usually filled by an old cow, would start off down the nearest draw, or stream heading, and all the rest would fall into line and follow her. From the moment this start was made there was no more feeding, save as a mouthful of grass could be snatched now and then without turning aside. In single file, in a line sometimes half a mile long, and containing between one and two hundred buffaloes, the procession slowly marched down the coulee. Close alongside the gully, as soon as the water course began to cut a pathway for itself. When the gully curved to right or left, the leader would cross its bed and keep straight on until the narrow ditch completed its wayward curve and came back to the middle of the coulee. The trail of a herd in search of water is usually as good a piece of engineering as could be executed by the best railway surveyor, and is governed by precisely the same principles. It always follows the level of the valley, swerves around the high points, and crosses the stream repeatedly in order to avoid climbing up from the level. The same trail is used again and again by different herds until the narrow path, not over a foot in width, is gradually cut straight down into the soil to a depth of several inches, as if it had been done by a twelve-inch grooving plane. By the time the trail has been worn down to a depth of six or seven inches, without having its width increased in the least, it is no longer a pleasant path to walk in, being too much like a narrow ditch. Then the buffaloes abandon it, and strike out a new one alongside, which is used until it is also worn down and abandoned. Today, the old buffalo trails are conspicuous among the very few classes of objects which remain as a reminder of a vanished race. The herds of cattle now follow them in single file, just as the buffaloes did a few years ago, as they search for water in the same way. In some parts of the West, in certain situations, old buffalo trails exist, which the wild herds wore down to a depth of two feet or more. Mile after mile marched the herd, straight downstream, bound for the upper waterhole. As the hot summer drew on, the pools would dry up one by one, those nearest the source being the first to disappear. Toward the latter part of the summer the journey for water was often a long one. Hole after hole would be passed without finding a drop of water. At last a hole of mud would be found, below that a hole with a little muddy water, and a mile farther on the leader would arrive at a shallow pool under the edge of a cut bank, a white, snow-like deposit of alkali on the sand encircling its margin, and encrusting the blades of grass and rushes that grew up from the bottom. The damp earth around the pool was cut up by a thousand hoof-prints, 
and the water was warm, strongly impregnated with alkali, and yellow with animal impurities. But it was water. That nauseous mixture was quickly surrounded by a throng of thirsty, heated, and eager buffaloes of all ages, to which the oldest and strongest asserted claims of priority. There was much crowding and some fighting, but eventually all were satisfied. After such a long journey to water, a herd would usually remain by it for some hours, lying down, resting, and drinking at intervals until completely satisfied. Having drunk its fill, the herd would never march directly back to the choice feeding grounds it had just left, but instead would leisurely stroll off at a right angle from the course it came, cropping for a while the rich bunch grasses of the bottomlands, and then wander across the hills in an almost aimless search for fresh fields and pastures new. When buffaloes remained long in a certain locality, it was a common thing for them to visit the same watering place a number of times, at intervals of greater or less duration according to circumstances. When undisturbed on his chosen range, the bison used to be fond of lying down for an hour or two in the middle of the day, particularly when fine weather and good grass combined to encourage him in luxurious habits. I once discovered with the field glass a small herd of buffaloes lying down at midday on the slope of a high ridge, and having ridden hard for several hours, we seized the opportunity to unsaddle and give our horses an hour's rest before making the attack. While we were so doing, the herd got up, shifted its position to the opposite side of the ridge, and again laid down, every buffalo with his nose pointing to windward. Old hunters declare that in the days of their abundance, when feeding on their ranges in fancied security, the younger animals were as playful as well-fed domestic calves. It was a common thing to see them cavort and frisk around, with about as much grace as young elephants, prancing and running to and fro with tails held high in the air like scorpions. Buffaloes are very fond of rolling in dry dirt or even in mud, and this habit is quite strong in captive animals. Not only is it indulged in during the shedding season, but all through the fall and winter. The two live buffaloes in the National Museum are so much given to rolling, even in rainy weather, that it is necessary to card them every few days to keep them presentable. Bulls are much more given to rolling than cows, especially after they have reached maturity. They stretch out at full length, rub their heads violently to and fro on the ground, in which the horn serves as a chief point of contact and slides over the ground like a sled-runner. After thoroughly scratching one side on Mother Earth, they roll over and treat the other in like manner. Notwithstanding his sharp and lofty hump, a buffalo bull can roll completely over with as much ease as any horse. The vast amount of rolling and side-scratching on the earth indulged in by bull buffaloes is shown in the worn condition of the horns of every old specimen. Often a thickness of half an inch is gone from the upper half of each horn on its outside curve, at which point the horn is worn quite flat. This is well illustrated in the horns shown in the accompanying plate, figure 6. Mr. Caitlin affords some very interesting and valuable information in regard to the bison's propensity for wallowing in mud, and also the origin of the fairy circles which have caused so much speculation amongst travelers. Quote, in the heat of summer, these huge animals, which no doubt suffer very much with the great profusion of their long and shaggy hair, or fur, often graze on the low grounds of the prairies, where there is a little stagnant water lying amongst the grass and the ground underneath being saturated with it is soft, into which the enormous bull, lowered down upon one knee, 
will plunge his horns, and at last his head, driving up the earth, and soon making an excavation in the ground into which the water filters from amongst the grass, forming for him in a few moments a cool and comfortable bath, into which he plunges like a hog in his mire. In this delectable labor he throws himself flat upon his side, and forcing himself violently around, with his horns and his huge hump on his shoulders, presented to the sides, he ploughs up the ground by his rotary motion, sinking himself deeper and deeper in the ground, continually enlarging his pool, in which he at length becomes nearly immersed, and the water and mud about him mixed into a complete mortar, which changes his colour and drips in streams from every part of him as he rises up upon his feet, a hideous monster of mud and ugliness, too frightful and too eccentric to be described. It is generally the leader of the herd that takes upon him to make this excavation, and if not, but another one opens the ground, the leader, who is conqueror, marches forward, and driving the other from it plunges himself into it, and having cooled his sides and changed his color to a walking mass of mud and mortar, he stands in the pool until inclination induces him to step out, and give place to the next in command, who stands ready, and another and another, who advance forward in their turns, to enjoy the luxury of the wallow, until the whole band, sometimes a hundred or more, will pass through it in turn, each one throwing his body around in a similar manner, and each one adding a little to the dimensions of the pool, while he carries away in his hair an equal share of the clay, which dries to a grey or whitish colour and gradually falls off. By this operation, which is done perhaps in the space of half an hour, a circular excavation of fifteen or twenty feet in diameter and two feet in depth is completed and left for the water to run into, which soon fills it to the level of the ground. To these sinks the waters lying on the surface of the prairies are continually draining, and in them lodging their vegetable deposits, which after a lapse of years fill them up to the surface with a rich soil which throws up an unusual growth of grass and herbage, forming conspicuous circles, which arrest the eye of the traveller and are calculated to excite his surprise for ages to come. Unquote. During the latter part of the last century, when the bison inhabited Kentucky and Pennsylvania, the salt springs of those states were resorted to by thousands of these animals, who drank of the saline waters and licked the impregnated earth. Mr. Thomas Ashe affords us a most interesting account, from the testimony of an eyewitness, of the behavior of a bison at a salt spring. The description refers to a locality in western Pennsylvania where, quote, an old man, one of the first settlers of this country, built his log house on the immediate borders of a salt spring. He informed me that for the first several seasons the buffaloes paid him their visits with the utmost regularity. They traveled in single files, always following each other at equal distances, forming droves on their arrival of about three hundred each. The first and second years, so unacquainted were these poor brutes with the use of this man's house, or with his nature, that in a few hours they rubbed the house completely down, taking delight in turning the logs off with their horns, while he had some difficulty to escape from being trampled under their feet or crushed to death in his own ruins. At that period he supposed there could not have been less than two thousand in the neighborhood of the spring. They sought for no manner of food, but only bathed and drank three or four times a day, and rolled in the earth, or reposed with their flanks distended in the adjacent shades, 
and on the fifth and sixth days separated into distinct droves, bathed, drank, and departed in single files, according to the exact order of their arrival. They all rolled successively in the same hole, and each thus carried away a coat of mud to preserve the moisture on their skin, and which, when hardened and baked in the sun, would resist the stings of millions of insects that otherwise would persecute these peaceful travellers to madness or even death." Unquote. End of section 7